As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. This season, we're taking a journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. If you've just discovered the podcast and haven't listened to the earlier episodes in this season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to them first, as each episode in this season builds upon the one before. The last few episodes have been focused on what my ancestors' lives may have been like in Sweden before departing for America. I shared a bit about Nils and Maria, the two people who left Sweden separately for their long journey to help Brigham Young and their Mormon brothers and sisters build Zion in the Utah Territory. They'd both been previously married and had children, but they each stepped on the sailing ship alone. Nils at the age of 40, and Maria at the age of 30 to begin their new lives. We left off last week with Wallace Stegner's harsh description of the high desert landscape that the early Mormon settlers found in Utah, and the idea that no other settlers would want it. But before we pick this story back up, let me just say that if this season is inspiring you to go deeper on your own journey with your ancestors and the spirits of the land, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other Earth Tenders from around the world. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. Okay, so now let's go back to Brigham Young and his lieutenants, who, after Joseph Smith's murder and their exile from the United States, were deciding where to take their flock of Mormon faithful. One of the locations considered was Northern California. Its climate was much preferable to the Utah desert, And this was still before gold was discovered in the foothills outside of Sacramento, not far from where I grew up. Many Mormons began to congregate in San Francisco, and for a time, the Mormon population there was larger than any other group of settlers. Can you imagine if San Francisco had become the headquarters of the LDS empire? I suppose there's some alternate timeline somewhere where that option played out. Anyway, Brigham Young insisted on the Great Basin and what was to become Salt Lake City. He knew he'd have way too many other settlers vying for California's fertile valleys and pleasant weather and didn't want the fight. Plus, as we discussed back in episode 72, if you wanted to build an empire, Salt Lake City was exactly where X marked the spot with the intersection of the 42nd parallel and the 111th meridian. So as he proclaimed, the Great Basin became the place and the settlers began to funnel from the east and the west towards the Great Salt Lake. 
But just because the conditions seemed grim for settlers fresh from more developed cities doesn't mean that nobody lived there. There were multiple indigenous tribes already in the area, and they weren't just going to hand over the land without a fight. But before we get to that, it might be helpful to have a short primer on Mormon doctrine about the Native American people. Because if you remember in my discussion with Cody Nakoni in episode 73, he mentioned that one of the things Joseph Smith may have been doing in writing the Book of Mormon was answering many of the questions that people had in that period of time. The traditional Bible couldn't explain the Native American people. Where had they come from? And the Book of Mormon had an answer, which honestly, even in my research, I find to be very confusing. So I'll try to explain it as simply as possible. Basically, there was an ancient Hebrew prophet named Lehi who traveled with his family from the Middle East to the Americas in about 600 BC. After his death, his sons have a falling out. Nephi is worried that his brothers are plotting to kill him, so he leads his followers, called the Nephites, into the wilderness, while his brother's group, the Lamanites, stay behind. The Lamanites are cursed by God, I guess for plotting against Nephi, and they, quote, received a skin of blackness so that they would be not enticing for the Nephites. So now, the Nephites, whose skin is white, head back over the sea to their homeland, while the dark-skinned Lamanites stay in the Americas. There's way more to this, of course, but for our purposes, it's important to know that from the Mormon perspective, the indigenous people were the descendants of this lost tribe, and that their dark skin proved that they were the Lamanites who had been cursed by God. It was now the Mormon's job to teach them the gospel so that on Judgment Day, the curse would be lifted and their skin would again be white. Or rather, let me quote directly from the Book of Mormon. White and exceedingly fair and delightsome. And in case you're wondering, no, the church has not updated or changed that language. In 2010, they made some minor revisions to the chapter summaries and footnotes in the Book of Mormon to soften the overtly racist language, but the doctrine remains. So back to 1847 and Brigham Young's arrival in Utah. Because while he may not have had any interest in fighting white settlers for land in California, he apparently had no qualms about fighting the native people for their land in Utah. It doesn't take long for Brigham to be at war with the people whose land he's quickly colonizing. Never mind the doctrine and covenant that said the Mormons were to share the gospel with the Lamanites. Brigham was focused on a completely different prophecy from Joseph Smith that said that many of the Lamanites would have to be slain, and by us, meaning the Mormons. In 1850, only three years after their founding of Zion in Utah, Brigham was writing to the government to say, It is our wish that the Indian title should be extinguished and the Indians removed from our territory or Utah. We wish for the government to buy out and transplant the Indians. In the meanwhile, the Mormon policy was to seize native land, murder anyone who resisted, and enslave the survivors. Six months later, Utah territorial militia records show a letter from Captain William McBride to General Daniel H. Wells requesting supplies to carry out this policy. Specifically, the captain says, we wish you, without a moment's hesitation, to send us about a pound of arsenic. We want to give the Indians well a flavor. Also, a spade to dig for water. 
a little strychnine would be a fine service and service instead of salt to their too fresh meat. So yeah, Mormons weren't preaching the gospel to the Utes and Shoshones. They were murdering and enslaving them. Brigham said in a speech to the legislature in 1852, we must believe in slavery. This colored race has been subjected to severe curses, which they have in their families and their classes and their various capacities brought upon themselves. And until the curse is removed by him who placed it upon them, they must suffer under its consequences. I am not authorized to remove it. I am a firm believer in slavery. So on the one hand, he is the mouthpiece of God on planet Earth. And on the other hand, he sees no use for showing love and mercy to anyone standing in his way of building an empire. Brigham claimed that the Lord owned the land, and as the Lord's agent, he was in charge of distributing stewardship of the land as he saw fit. And you can bet that he didn't see fit for anyone other than Mormons to steward it. There was much speculation in 1855 that Young had poisoned the Ute chief Wakara and secretly buried his body. And in 1857, an article in the San Francisco Herald claimed that the new feature in Mormon tactics was to send missionaries to search for an insidious but fatal poison in China. In 1866, the largest massacre of Native Americans happened in Circleville, where the Mormons disarmed about 30 Paiutes, 11 of them women and children, imprisoned them in the log church there, and then killed them. And while the men were shot, the women and children had their throats slit in a rite of blood atonement, what seemed to be a ritualized murder based on LDS teachings that they believed would save the souls of the victims. Truly horrifying behavior in the name of God and a soul's salvation. I could go on, but I don't think it's necessary to make the point. It's pretty clear that in order to get this land that he claimed nobody else wanted, Brigham was more than happy to exterminate or enslave anyone who was already there. Of course, there were losses on both sides. The tribes were not going to let their land go or their families be murdered without a fight. The Black Hawk War between the Utes and the Mormons was a series of skirmishes, battles, and raids between 1865 and 1872, where it's estimated that about 70 Mormons and a few hundred natives were killed. About 25 Mormon settlements had to be abandoned because they could not be defended against the tribes. But during those years, the tribal population in the area fell from about 23,000 to 10,000. And ultimately, the remaining indigenous people were forced onto reservations. And that's how the Mormons won the fight for Utah. By the time my ancestors, Nils and Maria, made their way from Sweden to England to New York to Chicago to Salt Lake City on their long journey to reach Zion, the threat of violence had significantly diminished. The population of Salt Lake City was over 20,000 people, two-thirds of whom were Mormon. The Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads both ran nearby. City Hall and a 15,000-seat tabernacle were completed this time, and the temple was under construction. There were streetcars, gas and water lines being built, churches, newspapers, and a library, and homes were built of adobe. This wasn't a dusty frontier town anymore. It was a bustling metropolis of the Industrial Revolution, built by the genocide of the native people, the tithes of church members, and with the labor of slaves, indentured servants, and volunteer missionaries. Is it any wonder they've managed to become the richest church in the world today? And yes, that fact shocked me too. 
I was certain the Catholic Church would have had more, but no, it's the Mormons. And not just by a little bit. The Catholic Church in Vatican City's net worth is about $30 billion. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is worth, wait for it, $100 billion. Oh, and that's tax-free. But I digress. I just nearly choked when I saw those statistics and thought they were worth sharing. Although, wait, before I get back on track, let me just explain one thing about tithes in the Mormon church. You remember how just because you're a Mormon doesn't mean you get access to the temple, right? You have to receive what's called a temple recommend in order to go into the temple. And only those who have gone through the temple ceremonies get access to the highest level of heaven after they die, where they get to join their other family members. Do you know what one of the requirements is to receive that temple recommend and thereby get to go to the celestial kingdom to be with your family in the afterlife? You've got to tithe 10% of your income to the church. Yep, if you don't give the church your money, you don't get to go to heaven. When I was fact-checking that little tidbit of information, I came across a website called Ask Gramps, where members can ask their difficult moral questions of this God-fearing Mormon grandpa who seems to have all the answers to the complicated questions in life. A single mother of three asked why her bishop wouldn't give her a temple recommend when she was living paycheck to paycheck to support her family and couldn't afford to send 10% to the church. Gramps' answer was that it doesn't take money to pay tithes, it takes faith, and then suggested that her struggles were her own fault due to her lack of tithing. Yeah. And if you grew up in a pass the plate and drop your change in kind of church, you might be wondering, how does a church know that these members paid their tithes? Because in the Mormon church, they track everything. You even meet with your bishop at the end of the year, along with your tax returns, and are required to prove that you gave the church the correct amount. Yeah, seriously. And Gramps himself went on to explain to the single mother that she just needed to take all of her financial documents to her bishop and let him show her how to redistribute her money in a way that God would find worthy. Not that the money ever finds its way to God, but hey, Let's not focus too hard on the details. And I know, churches aren't the only ones deploying these strategies to get rich off the efforts of their followers, but the Mormon church sure has seemed to perfect it. I think Peter Shampoo called the organization communist capitalists in episode 75, and I don't think he was wrong. Anyhow, let's get back to Nils and Maria's arrival. In his book, Plain But Wholesome, historian Brock Cheney quotes Hans Christensen, who he calls a typical Danish Mormon convert. Hans said of his journey to Utah, all we had in the world was our clothes, with the exception of one small frying pan which my wife's mother had given her to start housekeeping with. Foreign-born immigrants, Cheney says, hailing from the British Isles, Scandinavia, or the German-speaking states of Austria, Switzerland, or Bavaria, came to Utah largely without means. And I have no reason to believe it was any different for Nils and Maria. If they'd had farms of their own in Sweden, they probably wouldn't have left. In fact, we know that Nils was a shoemaker, so they likely sold what few possessions they had that were worth anything to have what little money may have been in their pockets when they did set sail for America. If they took money from the church's perpetual immigration fund, then they were indebted to the church from the day they stepped onto the boat and may never have gotten out of that debt in their lifetimes. That meant whatever the church asked of them, they did, or were required to do. And they were just two of thousands. 
By 1870, 37,000 European immigrants had made their way to the Utah Territory. Skilled Scandinavian workers like Nils were suffering as their country's government created economic policies that increased their taxes and took the bottom out of the demand for their goods. The Irish inheritance structures, economic turmoil, and a potato blight was starving millions of people in that country. And industrial conditions in Germany prompted Karl Marx to write his Communist Manifesto to suggest a solution to the issues created when factories and machines displaced the skilled working class. When these people, largely affected by the Industrial Revolution and the greedy robber barons of the day, heard the Mormon gospel advocating redistribution of wealth, they packed up what little they had and headed to Utah, hoping it would be the answer to their prayers. And if they weren't poor before they left their native homes, they certainly were by the time they reached Salt Lake City. The church encouraged them to humble themselves for their journey and take no luxuries. Likely a cost savings for the church, but also a manipulation that would ensure complete dependency on it when the settlers arrived. Those settlers were put to work on public projects when they did arrive, digging irrigation ditches or building roads to pay off their debts. Meanwhile, they had their own farming efforts to begin and paid work to take on in order to feed themselves, as most of that work was paid for in wheat, not cash. Not only was wheat a medium of exchange in Utah, the church leaders set the rate of exchange through the central tithing system, as tithes could be paid in wheat as well. So although it cost the immigrant little money to get to Utah, it likely cost them the rest of their life in labor. The contracts were made between the immigrant and Brigham Young. That's who held the promissory note, not even the church in this case, and were to be paid back with interest in cash, labor, or agricultural yields. Now, as you might imagine, most of these poor immigrants struggled to pay off their debts. Most of them were probably just trying to figure out how to get a roof over their heads and food in their mouths the first few years. At some point between 1855 and 1860, the First Presidency issued a circular letter to church leaders throughout the territory of Utah. The circular listed the names of individuals who owed money to the fund and the total sum of their debt. Those in debt were warned that if they failed to pay their loans, quote, the withering curse of the Almighty will be upon you to darken your minds, to lessen your faith, and cause a famine, spiritual and temporal, to consume you. So, public shaming and eternal damnation for the people doing the labor to build Brigham's empire. Nice. Anyhow, the fund was disbanded in 1887 after Congress passed the Edmunds-Tucker Act, which specifically forbade the territory of Utah from having any type of organization that brought people to the territory for any reason. Mostly because of the growing anti-immigrant sentiment in the country, but also, let's face it, because Congress was definitely not a fan of what the Mormons were up to out there in the Utah Territory. So at this point, there are nearly 40,000 Mormon immigrants who found their way to Salt Lake City with the intention of becoming landowners, something that was highly unlikely to be accomplished in their homelands. But few of them were actually farmers. Although there's a large segment of the world's population that was still farming in those days, many of these immigrants were already a generation or two away from living on self-sufficient farms. It's a myth that the early pioneers knew just what to do when they were handed a bare plot of land. Most of them had led urban lives before immigrating. Some of them may have lived in more agrarian areas and had a memory of grandparents who'd lived and preserved some of the old ways, 
but most of them were laborers or craftsmen. So I can imagine how shocking and physically difficult it would have been to arrive in Utah in the heat of summer and be put to work helping to build the kingdom of Zion, helping the other members of your community with their farms, all while building your own in an unfamiliar land. That was what they had to do, work or starve. But the one thing the Mormon immigrants did have was each other. And for all the unfamiliar soil, plants, trees, and animals, there was something that would have felt very familiar to Scandinavian immigrants like Nils and Maria, the structure of the Mormon communities, because they were eerily similar to the old European villages. Wallace Stegner explained in the book Mormon Country, the plat is a mile square. The blocks contain 10 acres, cut into 20 half-acre lots, and are separated by streets eight rods wide. The blocks and the houses and the streets sit four square with the directions, and the houses are set back from the streets a uniform distance of 25 feet. No lots are allowed to contain more than one house. Barns and stables are outside the town limits, as are the farming lands, each owner of a town lot being also the owner of a plot of land, anywhere from 5 to 60 acres, but generally 10 or 20, from which he gets his sustenance. Sound familiar? All the houses are in town together, although the lots are much larger than what we'd expect in a town today. Mormons had a half acre to plant their kitchen gardens and have a small orchard, chickens, and the like in their backyard. And then everyone also had a larger plot of land to farm outside the city limits. This design was created for the city of Zion by Joseph Smith, long before the Mormons made it to Utah. But it's what was used to lay out every little city and town in Brigham's empire. In fact, since I was traveling in Utah when I first read about this city layout structure, I started testing it out for each little town we drove through. Houses on large lots? Check. Homes set back at least 25 feet from the street? Generously wide two-lane streets through town with enough space for angled parking on both sides? Check. It's a fun game if you're on a road trip in Utah and some of the neighboring states. And you'll know right away if Mormons founded that particular town, even though if you're in Utah, the Mormons most definitely founded the town. Anyhow, as Stegner points out, it was the people who built these towns. And because Mormon colonization is group colonization, and because the family was and still is, of tremendous importance in the social structure of the saints. And because the women of those families insisted, and Brigham encouraged, on carrying rose cuttings and geranium slips and flower seeds and seedling trees across more than 8,000 miles of wilderness, the Mormon village is a green village. Brigham said the land would blossom like a rose in the desert, and the people made it so. These towns are evidence of the group consciousness that was required to settle this land. In the beginning of each settlement, the land was surveyed, first the town lots and then the farmland. Every colonist drew his properties from the hat. He could swap or bargain with someone else if he didn't like what he drew, but regardless, they were all to live in the town together. And part of why this layout worked, just like it did from the Middle Ages right up to the early 1800s in Scandinavia, was because of its practicality. It was too much for an individual family to maintain the dams and irrigation ditches that were required for farming this area. The farmland could be broken because of the combined efforts of the group. Water and supplies were limited, so they could either work together or starve alone. But 
Let's be honest, this structure was also convenient for the church who wanted to keep an eye on their members in these far-flung outposts. In 1882, some families near Logan wanted to move out of the town and build their homes on their farmland and requested permission from the church to do so. The response from the church was that the saints should be advised to gather together in villages, as has been our custom from the time of our earliest settlement in these mountain valleys. The advantages of this plan, instead of carelessly scattering out over a wide extent of country, are many and obvious to those who have a desire to serve the Lord. By this means, the people can retain their ecclesiastical organizations, have regular meetings of the quorums of the priesthood, and establish and maintain day and Sunday schools, improvement associations, and relief societies. They can also cooperate for the good of all in financial and secular matters, in making ditches, fencing fields, building bridges, and other necessary improvements. Further than this, they are a mutual protection and a source of strength against horse and cattle thieves, land jumpers, etc., and against hostile Indians, should there be any, while their compact organization gives them many advantages of a social and civic character which might be lost, misapplied, or frittered away by spreading out so thinly that intercommunication is difficult, dangerous, inconvenient, and expensive. So yeah, first of all, not only were the saints not allowed to do just whatever they wanted to do with their homes and land, they were shamed for asking such a question. But I think it's also clear here that the village was expected to operate as a unit, and it was easier to keep the unit functioning like a well-oiled machine if everyone knew what everyone else was supposed to be doing and where they were supposed to be, just like bees in a hive. Stegner continues, These are the things a traveler notices even in a brief visit to the Mormon country. Trees and villages and ward houses, intensive irrigation farming, the constant evidence of cooperative effort. The pattern is not the usual American pattern. In many ways, the life and the institutions it's produced are unique. And it is endlessly repetitive everywhere in Mormon country, sometimes hundreds of miles from the center at Salt Lake City. You can see the same things going on in the same kinds of ward houses and the same kinds of villages on the same nights of the week. You can see the same lush fields and the same characteristic trees and the same villages perched in the midst of the scrap of cultivable land that supports them hives in a field of clover. And those structures are still in place today. You can see the results of the immigrants' efforts driving from town to town across Utah still today in 2022. It's actually quite remarkable. And I think the more I learned about the lives of Nils and Maria, and likely the next generation or two after them led in the Utah Territory, the more compassion I was able to have for their situation. Were they colonizers who took land that didn't belong to them and make it their own? Yes, absolutely. And did they and their future generations benefit from that? I mean, in many ways, I'm sure they did. Ultimately, they were white U.S. citizens, so that alone was beneficial enough. But it doesn't seem like there was much financial benefit that resulted from their hard work and sacrifices to build the city of Zion for the church and themselves. When Nils and Maria's oldest son, Niels, took his family and left their Mormon homestead in Idaho for California one generation later, they were pretty much itinerant farmers. The only work that generation had known, unlike their parents. I don't know what happened to that family farm, although I was able to find it and drive past it a few years ago. But in the 1920 census, it shows that they owned their Idaho farm and had a mortgage on it. By the 1930 census, they're living on a rented farm just north of Sacramento, 
and Niels is working for a sugar beet farm. His 19-year-old daughter, my great-grandma Alta, was married by then to a 28-year-old unemployed box factory worker who would ultimately disappear under mysterious circumstances, leaving her with three little kids in the middle of the Great Depression. In the 1940 census, she's living in downtown Sacramento with her kids, her brother, and a lodger, only about a mile from where I worked for a decade and a half, 50 years later. So did these Mormon immigrants end up better off than they would have in the places they left behind? After all was said and done, they were trading their physical labor to get land the church stole from the indigenous people to build an empire. And they traded their souls for what they thought was everlasting life in heaven, but turned out to be a kind of church-created afterlife where they were waiting around for the return of Jesus and the time of the millennium. But they were on American soil, and at least in those days, that mattered. I do wonder about what traditions with the land in Sweden were carried with my ancestors to America. Did they want to leave the old ways behind and assimilate into American customs, or were there bits and pieces of lore that had survived from before the days of the witch hunts in Sweden? I think of my great-grandma Alta, who feels to me like the link between the old ways and the new. She knew her Swedish and English grandparents, and may have heard some of their stories. And she also knew me. She didn't pass away until I was 18 years old, so she was around my entire childhood. But I don't recall her telling me any stories from her time in Idaho or anything about her parents or grandparents. In fact, her mother was still alive and living in Sacramento until I was seven years old. But I don't recall ever meeting her. But I wonder about Alta's Swedish grandmother, Maria, who died before she was born. What traditions did she carry with her to America? Did she continue to cook traditional Swedish foods, even the ones at odds with the word of wisdom that forbade things like caffeine or alcohol? Did she miss the deep flavors of Scandinavian rye bread when she could only find wheat in Utah? Did she continue making apple skiver on her cast iron pan that she may have carried with her from Sweden? And what about the traditions with the land? Even if Nils and Maria hadn't grown up living and working on farms, there's a few traditions that survived, even through Christianity and the witch hunts. One of the most popular being that of the Tomten. The Tomten is a tiny little gnome-like being who is a guardian for every farm in Scandinavia. His job is to take care of the land and the animals, particularly at night when the farmer is sleeping. Only the animals can see this little farm gnome with his gray robe, pointed red hat, and long white beard. In fact, he's thought to be the being who initially brought the farm into creation, so he's fiercely loyal to ensuring that all of the chores are done properly. The Tomta is known for retaliating against farmers who don't take care of the land, try to take shortcuts, or even for using modern equipment. He's quite the traditionalist. The farmer might wake up to find his animals missing or sick if the Tomten was displeased. He doesn't tolerate poor behavior, like rudeness, cursing, or the abuse of his animal friends. If offended, he may leave the farm and never return. But Tomta is a benevolent creature if you treat him with the respect he deserves, including treating your animals well, observing traditions, and most importantly, offering him his favorite meal. Farmers across Scandinavia have for generations offered their Tomta a dish of porridge out in the stable to keep him happy. 
on Christmas, there were extra special gifts for the Thompson, including honey and porridge, some gray wool yarn for him to make his clothes, a pinch of tobacco, and a bit of clay for making a pipe. Although the Thompson was a very much a spirit of the land connected with the farm and the animals, you can see how he became a bit of a personification with Santa Claus in Scandinavia. In fact, the Swedish name for Santa is Jultomten, which means the Christmas Thompson. Rather than a jolly old man checking on children to see who's been naughty and who's been nice, the Jultomten is an eternal caretaker of the land who ponders the deep questions of life. A poem called The Thompson popularized these little nature spirits and the Scandinavian holiday traditions and was published in 1881. Certainly Nils and Maria would have read it or heard it somewhere. And maybe they shared it with their young children at Christmas time, keeping just a bit of their memories of Sweden alive in their hearts. Instead of cookies and milk, perhaps they placed a bowl of porridge with butter and honey in the barn before bed on Christmas Eve in hopes that a Tomto would help care for their new homeland in Utah. I like that idea. Even if the church was demanding assimilation and a homogenous Mormon culture, maybe there were still a few foods and traditions that remained. And in the spirit of the holiday season and the memory of Nils and Maria and all those who came before them, I'd like to share with you the Tompton poem here. It has a familiar cadence to a Christmas poem most of us already know, but ponders some of the deeper questions in life that the Tompton may have had about us humans, like where we come from and where we go, one generation after another, while the Tompton stands guard. I guess maybe this season of the podcast is pondering the exact same thing. And so I give you this reading of the poem in English as read by Kevin Sorbo, found on the Hydromaker YouTube channel. Midwinter nights cold is hard, stars glimmer and gleam. All sleeps in quiet yard deep in the midnight dream. Snow shines white on fence and spruce, moonbeams bright on snow-capped roofs. Moonstreams hush near frozen lake. Only Tomten is awake. Gray he stands beside the door, gray against the driven snow, puzzling as before. So many winter moons would know. He stares at forest, spruce, and pine. He stares, a question on his mind. His hand to chin he brings to tap, shakes his head, pulls off his cap, scratches beard, breaks through hair, and mutters something in the air. I cannot solve this mystery. No, this one is too hard for me. Leaving the question turns with haste. I've work to do, no time to waste. He walks by the storage, walks by the shed, checks all the locks, looks over the sty, checks to see if the cows have been fed, off to the stables, turns with a sigh. Cows dream in moonlight, Snow all aglow, dream of summer sunlight in the meadows below. Samson dreams also free of harness and bed. Alone he sleeps in a stable moonlit. Dreams that hay he now leans over is really fresh and fragrant green clover. Thompson sees the little lambs and sheep, sees how peaceful and quiet they sleep. Inside the henhouse, as still as a church, not even a rooster looks up from his perch. He walks by Max, sleeping sound in the hay. Max wakes and wags his tail. 
Max shakes his coat as if to say, Hello, my friend. He knows Tom Den well. At last, Tom Den enters the house, looks in on the master and devoted spouse. Long and well have they honored his spirit. Long and well has he come for his visit. Then off to the children's room he tiptoes. Tip-tap, tip-tap, tippy-tap as he goes. Tompton looks in on the good girls and boys, sees them all dreaming his cherished of joys. He sees them this way from father to son, as sleeping children, but from where do they come? He sees them this way from dusk to dawn. They blossom, they bloom, they age, and they're gone. The riddle returns to tease him again, a question of the beginning and end. Generations come and generations go. Where do they come from and to where do they go? Tom Ten wanders back out to the farm. Hay smells like perfume inside the barn. He sees cat asleep, purring there. Sees swallow's nest empty and bare. He yearns for earth to turn to spring, yearns for swallow to return and sing. Love songs of his favorite kind, tales of rebirth to renew Tom Ten's mind. Moonbeams peek through slits and walls, one streaks across his beard. The streak upon his beard is shining, the question on his brow undying. Quiet is the forest, and under its floor all life out there is frozen. Yet far away on a distant shore, water laps. The silence is broken. Tom Den, half in a dream of rhythm and rhyme, thinks he hears the stream of time. Tom Ten wonders and wants to know, where does it come from and where does it go? Midwinter nights, cold is hard, stars glimmer and gleam. All sleeps in quiet yard, deep in a morning dream. Snow shines white on fence and spruce, moonbeams bright on snow-capped roofs. Moon streams hush near a frozen lake. Only Tom Ten is awake. I hope you had a beautiful winter solstice and a happy holiday season. I'll be taking a short break to enjoy the coming weeks with friends and family, and we'll see you back here for the final few episodes of the season in 2023. Happy New Year, my friends. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.